Okay, so we're going to carry on this morning uh, with our study uh, in the book of Genesis. We kind of got partway through our study, a study in Psalm 37 last week, um, really to kind of bring us back into the new year. Uh, maybe at some point in the year we'll, we'll revisit that and look at some of the things that are in that psalm. But one of the key things that comes out of that is don't worry because of the state of the world. Don't worry because of the things that are going on around us because God is in complete control. You know, and what a great way to, to remember where we've got to in our story with Joseph, of course, that he never gave up that trust, that confidence, and that faith that he had in God. Despite the circumstances, everything seemingly going wrong, being ripped away from a father who he loved and who loved him. You know, taken away from his brothers whom, whilst they didn't like him, no doubt Joseph still had a lot of affection for them. Taken to a strange land, a strange situation then set up, accused of things he'd not done, imprisoned. You know, it it doesn't get worse than that. And yet, of course, he remembered that God had made promises. And we see the way that the Lord miraculously intervenes and works the situation. You know, there's a great line I've said a number of times by Oswald Chambers. And he says, if we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he can alter them in two seconds when he chooses. You know, I think that's so true that often, you know, we, we sometimes look for, for ways or resolutions out of, out of situations. We try and reason or ration things in our own mind. But actually, we just need to go and worship God. You know, there's nothing better than to worship God when it's not easy. That's when we should be worshiping God. That's when we should be praising. I think I said before as well that my gran, who was a big influence on me, she died when I was just 14, but when I was young, I used to go down after school and see her every day, take the newspaper down, and we used to have a chat. I remember she used to say to me that, you know, whenever you feel low or fed up or depressed or whatever because of circumstances or just you've had a hard day, she said, that's the time to praise God. She said, just find something to praise God for. You know, typically open up the book of Psalms. You know, and look there, there's always something you can find to remind you of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. So we'll see more of that as we go into this study this morning. Um, but let's, as we do, just bow our hearts and just ask the Lord to, to bless this time of study. Father, we do just pray now that you open our ears and our hearts to you. Father, I pray you take my words uh, and Lord, that you would speak, Lord, through them, that you would stir us, Lord, that we would be challenged this morning, that we would grow, that we'd be edified. Father, don't allow us to leave here as we've come in. Uh, But Father, go from here this morning, Lord, with a real hunger and a desire and a thirst for you and for righteousness and for holiness, for everything that's of you. And Lord, as we step out into the world again tomorrow, into our routines, whatever they be, Lord, may this time this morning resound in our ears and in our hearts, this time that we've been able to spend with our brothers and sisters and with you, just Lord, switching off from the world. So, Lord, just use this time now just to allow us to grow together as we sit at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've gone through, obviously, this uh, whole book of Genesis. We're in the closing section now of the book. Um, And we've gone through, of course, the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we've been looking very much at Joseph. Uh, And we're in this final section now. Uh, We're going to go on over the next week or two looking at the prophecies that Jacob pronounces over his sons, uh, which obviously have incredible um, clarity as they look into the future um, for these sons. But this chapter, chapter 46, we're going to move into, uh, this is where Jacob finally moves to Egypt. You know, 
they've not seen each other for some 22 years. And I'm still not quite sure how the brothers got back after this final trip to Egypt and, and said, you know, um, uh, Dad, got something to tell you. Um, you know, we said that um, Joseph had been eaten by an animal or something similar. Uh, well, we did it. You can just imagine that that kind of moment of silence as Jacob kind of looks at them and they're looking at him. You know, and they probably added, but but, but Joseph said that, that we shouldn't feel bad about it, and, and neither should you, Dad. <laughs> Please. <laughs> it's just a very awkward moment as, as that realization came for, for Jacob that his own sons had deceived him for all this time. Very, very difficult situation. But we'll look at that a bit more in a moment. But I just want to share this with you. This is where we've got to. Joseph, who was the beloved of the father, he was rejected by his brethren. He suffers, but finally he's exalted. He takes a Gentile bride. He holds the office of king and priest. And during a period of seven years of trouble, his brethren cry out to him for help and they acknowledge their sin and they repent in their hour of need and Joseph becomes their saviour what a wonderful picture of the gospel and of what God has done particularly for the nation of Israel you just see how God has intertwined in these pages his bigger plan, his bigger picture of what he is yet to do for the nation of Israel of course Jesus was the beloved of the Father, rejected by his brethren, by Israel according to the flesh. And Jesus, of course, suffered, but now is exalted, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is going to take for himself a Gentile bride, of which we are part. Jesus is a, a prophet, a priest, a king. And of course, during this time of tribulation to come, it will be during that time that Israel will cry out to him. And it will be in that moment when they acknowledge their sin and they will look upon him whom they've pierced, they will mourn. And they will repent, and Jesus will become their saviour. What a lovely picture. Of course, we find that Jesus made himself known to his brothers. When and why? Well, it was when he saw in them the fruits of repentance. What a wonderful gift repentance is. And it is a, a work of the Holy Spirit. We're told in the book of Romans that, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, repentance, of course, brings restoration. And then restoration brings revelation. As these brothers came to see this one who they'd been looking at, they hadn't realized who he was. Wasn't that, again, just the same as the nation of Israel? As we've seen, you know, Joseph was hidden from his brothers until they repented. And Jesus will be hidden from Israel until also they repent. Again, that verse from Zechariah 12, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. It's the lovely picture that we see through this. Now, again, as I said, 22 years prior to this was the last time that Jacob and Joseph had seen each other. Of course, Jacob thinks that Joseph's dead. Joseph has no idea up until this point his brother's visiting whether his father was still alive. That's one of the questions he asks them. Is my father yet alive? Was his heart stirred to find out that his dad is still alive. And so he sends for him. And Jacob now is going to move 
with the family down to Egypt. Again, this is in fulfillment of that prophetic promise that had been given to Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, you remember, verse 15, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, that's the Lord speaking to Abraham, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. No, it's all, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now again, we talked about this back in Genesis 15 when we were studying that. You know, it's not saying that they needed to sin a little bit more, and when they've sinned enough, that, that's, you know, that's the point. You know, is God giving the Amorites a chance to repent? Is that why this, this trip out of the land for a while? No, it's, it's more that the end of something is in sight. And we, we spoke a lot about the, the influx of the Nephilim that would come to an end. And the Lord wanted his people out of the way because you remember the reason for this influx of the Nephilim, the satanic invasion in a sense, corrupting the gene pool around this area after the flood it happened before the flood it was a reason for the flood and it happened again after the flood we're told in Genesis 6 the reason was to stop the Messiah coming that was the intention that Satan had of course he failed but God in his mercy in his grace in his wisdom moved Israel moved the family out of the way out of harm's way until it was time for them when they became a nation they, they go in as a family they come out as a nation and they're ready to go back into the promised land, albeit after waiting 38 years longer than they needed to. But they go into the promised land under Joshua and they're able to destroy and wipe out these giant tribes that are then in the land. The world doesn't understand this. They think, you know, we hear words like genocide and so on. They have no concept and no clue what was going on in the spiritual realm at this point and how important it was that these nations were destroyed so that the Messiah could come. So I want to ask the question though, because, you know, very often we get in situations in our own life where we think we're ready for something. You know, maybe Abraham kind of questioned this when God told him that his descendants are going to be, you know, sojourners for this period of 400 years and that they're going to spend a time out of the land. And again, we've, we've talked, we'll look at it in more detail uh, in weeks to come. But they, the Israel, contrary to what a lot of commentaries and people say, they weren't in Egypt for 400 years. The, the maths make that very clear anyway. But um, they're only in Egypt total for a period of 215 years. The other period of time, so the other 215 years of a 430-year period were spent in the land of Canaan, where they were sojourners. They were, it wasn't their own land. Of course, during that last period of that time in Egypt, they come under bondage. But the whole period of time, they were in a, a land that wasn't theirs. It's not until they go back in under Joshua. You know, and Abraham may have wondered, you know, why they couldn't have just taken the land now. Maybe Isaac had these promises made to him, it reiterated that the land would be theirs, and thinking, well, why can't we have it now? Jacob, the same promises again, that this land is going to be theirs. Thinking, well, why not now? And Jacob now, on the point of leaving the land, must have been thinking... Why are we leaving this land that God has promised us? You see, we may think we're ready for the challenges. God's timing is always perfect. God sees the, the bigger picture. We don't. You know, consider David as just one example. You know, after the situation with slaying Goliath and then going out and slaying many Philistines and earning his bride, Saul's daughter thinking no doubt at that point he's ready to become king 
obviously very mindful of the fact that he'd been anointed those years before by Samuel. But then everything seems to fall apart and he has this period of time running and fleeing. He's on his own for some of this time at the beginning and then gradually a, a band of kind of no-hopers and ruffians all kind of gather around him and his family join him as well. And He learned so many lessons during that period of, of trial and difficulty before finally becoming king. Even when he becomes king, he's not king over the whole nation immediately. God often makes us wait for things, doesn't he? And we're not good at waiting. We don't like waiting. Paul is another one. Consider the enthusiasm that he had to preach the gospel after he was saved. You know, after putting Christians to death and suddenly meeting Jesus and realizing that the gospel that he'd heard proclaimed by these Christians was true. And that everything he'd known from Judaism, all the, 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 the twists, it all pointed to Jesus. So excited was he that he wanted to go and he started preaching the gospel and he ends up having to be lowered over a wall in a basket and escaping. We find it's 14 years later that by God's estimation he's ready to go out and preach the gospel. Paul has to go and spend time seemingly down in Sinai where the law was given to really understand what God wanted to show him. You know, and for us sometimes we, we wait and we wait and we wait. Well, Israel are in that position now. Jacob is in that position. Having to leave, having to almost walk away from what he believed to be God's promise for him. And he must have been a little bit confused. There must have been that question in his heart. We read verse 1 of chapter 46. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. This is... A place that's familiar to the family. Abraham had been here. Isaac had been here. Abraham, if you remember, had gone down from here into Egypt. And that had resulted, of course, in all the problems bringing Hagar back and everything that ensued from that. Isaac had been specifically told by God, don't go down into Egypt. And now, Jacob gets to this place and kind of pauses on the journey. And he stops and he offers sacrifices to God. And no doubt on his mind and his heart, there's that question, Lord, is this really right? Should I go down there? Should I leave the land that you've promised? Didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Again, back through that land of his forefathers, that place Beersheba, well of the, the sevenfold oath. It was a place that Hagar had been visited by the angel. Abraham had taken an oath there with Abimelech. A very significant place historically for them. And again, Isaac was met by God there. Uh, Just to give you some idea, journey-wise, we're coming down from Hebron down to Beersheba. And this is the point that he pauses. That was kind of at this point, the kind of the the lowest part of the land. They're about to kind of come out of the the land of, of Canaan as it was at the time. Jacob was just thinking, should I really do this? Is this right? You know... And God sometimes leads us in ways that we don't always understand. I don't know about you, but I, when I was younger, I, I had this plan for my life that I was sure that God had, that God wanted. And all those things got stripped away. You know, I look back and I see how God used them as stepping stones, as building blocks in my life to bring me to, to the place I am now. Yeah, and of course now I think I know what's going to happen over the, the years to come if the Lord tarries. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the Lord has planned. Now, and by the way, I, I really firmly believe that it's here. 
This is where God wants me. It's such a blessing, this fellowship. And, you know, so many people around the world would love the opportunity to be able to meet together and fellowship and praise God and study God's word together like we get the opportunity to do every week. It's such a blessing we have. Of course, he's going to carry on this journey going down now into Egypt and they're going to settle in this, this the, the, the delta area of Egypt as the, the Nile goes off into the Mediterranean. This very fertile piece of land uh, is going to be their home. It's a beautiful place um, for them to go and dwell and stay. So Jacob was sent out from this place to Paddan Aram, to Laban, and had come back. But now Jacob is returning one last time. He's going to leave the land of his fathers. And, you know, for Jacob, he's never going to see this land again because he's going to die in Egypt. You know, that's okay too because sometimes God doesn't have to fulfill everything through you. Sometimes you're part of God's plan. And also, I just think that's so important in regard to evangelism. Because sometimes we can feel very uh, despondent if we try and evangelize to somebody and they don't come to the Lord there and then. Of course, if they respond to the gospel, brilliant, it's wonderful. But you know, sometimes God uses you as part of a plan. Of course, we, we like to think that we, we are the whole deal, that God is going to use us to do everything. And, you know, in, in our lives, we don't know in the light of eternity what God is doing with each of us. But God is working through each of us and doing incredible things, things that we don't get to see. And I praise God that very often we don't get to see the things that he's doing. Because otherwise that would often just lead to pride. But be sure of this, that God has chosen, has appointed you to bear fruit. And you will bear fruit. If you are Christ's, if you are connected to the root, you will bear fruit. You may not always see or perceive or understand that fruit. And some of you here this morning, you may not understand or perceive what your ministry is. Or you may think it's one thing, but actually it may be something else that the Lord is doing through you that you don't even know, you're not even conscious of. You can be a blessing to other people in ways that you don't see. Or Jacob here, just playing his part in God's overall Plan. And as I said before, you know, this fear on Jacob's part about not going down. Of course, how could he not have fear, all these things? But Proverbs tells us that actually the knowledge of God will keep us from fear. Ultimately, it's that trusting God, that God is in complete control. I love that phrase that's often used, you know, if you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. Because if you reverently fear God, well, you know that he's in control. And so we read, and God spoke unto Israel. So this is God responding to all of those kind of ideas and things going on in Jacob's heart and mind. God spoke unto Israel in the visions of the night. and said, Jacob, Jacob. We often find God speaking that kind of very gentle way, just calling your name. Now, it's nice when people use your name, isn't it? As people speak to you rather than just as a person, but as you. Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God. Oh, you could just stop there. We could, I mean, Spurgeon would make a whole sermon of that, that, that section. I am God. What else needs to be said? God would call and speak to any one of us. And yet he does. Every time you pick up the word of God to read the word of God, God will speak to you. 
call you by name. God says, I am God. Let's just settle that first of all. And then he reminds you, he says, the God of thy father. So he's now got the history. He now has to remember all that God did for his father, for Abraham, of course, and for Isaac. But God was faithful. And then God says, fear not. Because Jacob clearly was fearful. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. God is saying, this is part of my plan. Don't worry. And go. And God says, I will go down with thee into Egypt. God doesn't just send us out alone. He goes with us. And I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. In other words, when you die, Joseph will be there to close your eyes at the end. You're going to get to see your son again. You know, he spent most of his life providing for himself, struggling through. He mentioned this in a while himself. And we often end up in this battle between the process of life and the purpose of life. You know, often we spend an unnecessary amount of time on the necessary things. You know, our focus should really be upon what the Lord would have and how the Lord would use us. Again, as we said last week, it comes back to what we read in Matthew. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will sort itself out. God is now going to make of him a great nation as he's made this promise. Jacob, of course, has done nothing to earn this privilege. It's all part of God's wonderful plan to bring a saviour into the world. And we read, Jacob rose up from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and their wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. I mean, this is a big thing, isn't it? Because, you know, if you've got children, you know what it's like when you try and leave the house. You know, before you have children, it's easy. You just get your coat, you go out the door, you lock the door, you're gone. When you have children, it's a totally different thing. You start preparing normally a few days before, you know, and, and you have to make sure you've got the coats and the shoes and it's just, you know, one of them, then the coat on, then you the zip, you know, you've been there. You know what it's like. It's hard work. Jacob's moving a whole family with loads of grandchildren and there's little ones around him. Everybody's going and the, the little ones are saying, where are we going? Why are we going? I like where we were, can't we? And they're saying, no, no, this is going to be great. They've got food. Well, that will, that will sort the children out. The whole family. You know, this is a really big thing. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they'd gotten in the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh actually had said to him, don't worry, don't bring anything, just come, we've got everything you need. But, we told they, they took their cattle and their goods, which they'd gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, and his sons and his sons' sons with him, and his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. And these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok and Falu and Hezron and you know, Kami. We were looking for boys' names, weren't we? We were talking about this. What, you know, there's some, some good ones in this. And again, for, for, for Matt, Matt, you know. And the sons of, of Simeon, uh, Jemuel and Jamin, uh, Ohad and Yakin and Zohar and Shul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. That's specifically highlighted and we'll mention this again in a short while. And the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And the sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez. Again, we've talked a lot about Perez already, and Zerah. 
And we're told that Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Pharez, now this will be the line that will come down to the Messiah from Judah. Pharez, or Hezron. Again, he'll be in that line that comes to the Messiah. And Hamuel. And the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, and Job, and Shimron, and the sons of Zebulun, Zered, and Elon, and Jalil. These will be the sons of Leah. So those are listed first, which she bare unto Jacob in Paddan Aram, with his daughter Dinah, all the souls of his sons and his daughters were 13 and 3. And the sons of Gad, uh, Ziphion and Hagi, uh, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi and Areli, and the sons of Asher, Jimna, and you can mispronounce these later at home by all means, uh, Ishu and Izu, and uh, Bariah and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heba, and, and Malkiel. So, We've given those in there. Told the sons of Zebulun, who Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. These she bare unto Jacob, even sixteen souls. And then we've given the souls, sorry, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, just the two, Joseph and Benjamin. Of course, Jacob had this real, real love for Rachel, and of course for for the children they shared together. And unto Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, which Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bare unto him. This Gentile bride that he takes, he has these two children by her. And the sons of Benjamin were Bela and Becha and Ashbel, Gera, Naim, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim and Hupim. They're great names, aren't they? Mupim and Hupim. If we have twins, we're not having twins, but you know. Uh, and Arad, uh, these are the sons of Rachel which were born to Jacob. All the souls were fourteen. And the sons of Dan Pushim, and the sons of Naphtali, uh, Jazheel, and Guni, and Jezah, and uh, Shilim. These are the sons of Bilhar, which Laban gave unto Rachel, his daughter. So this is Rachel's handmaid. And she bare unto Jacob. Uh, all these souls were seven, and all the souls which came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins. The details of scripture are so precise. You'll see this in a moment. Besides Jacob's sons' wives, all the souls with three score and six. Okay, so that's 66. And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls. And all the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, with three score and ten. That's 70. Now, I want to share something with you. Because if you look in commentaries, you're going to get all sorts of wacky, strange ideas and explanations about these numbers and things like that. And I just want to take you through the, the, the biblical approach. Because a lot of people claim, critics and so on, that we have an error. Okay? Because we've got three different numbers given of how many of this family go down into Egypt. And some people say, oh, does it really matter? Well, yeah, it does matter because if it's a mistake, the Bible's wrong. If the Bible's wrong, then we might as well go and do something else. Right, so here in verse 26, we're told there's 66 that go down. Verse 27 gives us a total of 70 because it includes Joseph, his two sons, and no doubt Jacob's included in that one as well. But in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives us 75. Now that's where the problem comes in, because we read verse 14 of Acts 7. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and fifteen souls, seventy-five souls. So, the reason we have this issue. So yeah, the uh, references there, by the way. Um, also, we've got, uh, Exodus 1, verse 5, Deuteronomy 10, 22, uh, where 70 is also given. Um, so we've got these various numbers that are given to us. 
Now, the common scholarly approach, I put that in inverted commas, uh, to resolving this is that people take the Septuagint translation. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was purportedly done uh, around about 270 BC. Um, 70 Jewish scholars, some say 72, but uh, whatever, 70 so Jewish scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And it became known as the Septuagint. Now, uh, a lot of people put a lot of uh, trust and store in this uh, version, this translation. Um, you'll see that you need to be a little bit careful of this. Okay. Now, the Septuagint has actually got an additional five names in it, in the Genesis account, that are not listed in our Bibles, in the, the Torah. And so it reconciles it with Stephen's statement in Acts chapter 7, because it adds an extra five. We've got the 70, we add the five. Therefore, Stephen and the Septuagint are all in agreement. And so the question then is raised upon the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So it leads to the the conclusion that there's an error, of course. Um, Now, these missing five names that are inserted in the Septuagint, we actually find the names in First Chronicles in chapter 7. And the names given are actually Machir, the son of Manasseh, uh, his son, uh, Gilead, and Ephraim's two sons, Tehan and Shuthla, uh, which, uh, along with his own son, Iran. So that, that's the names that are added to give us this extra five people. But if it's true, think about this. It means that when Stephen is speaking to this most august Jewish body, the, the, this incredible council, this is 70 elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, it means that he'd have been quoting from the Septuagint. All right? I'll read a quote to you by a man by the name of Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. He says this, Is it really reasonable or likely that Stephen, having been dragged in before the Sanhedrin by a mob and now in the middle of a spirit-filled address before the very men who had caused the death of his Lord, while speaking as a Hebrew to the Hebrews, would have quoted from a Greek Old Testament manuscript of Genesis, in which five names have been added in violation of the Hebrew laws governing scripture transmission. He says, we trow not. He says, Deuteronomy 4, 2, 12, 32, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, and Proverbs 30, verse 6, all declare to neither add, not subtract, or nor subtract from God's word. He says, are we to suppose that Stephen is going to convert the Sanhedrin have already crucified Christ and or possibly saved his own life by quoting to them from a verse that added five names to the scriptures which they used in the synagogue every Sabbath. No small wonder they killed him. They would have looked at him as a perverter of scripture. Such an act is not that which is recorded in the account. He goes on. and says, They slew Stephen for confronting them with the person of the Lord Jesus, that he was Christ indeed, and rather than receive him as such... They had him murdered as their fathers had done to his predecessors, the prophets. They were further enraged by Stephen's call to repentance and his accusation that they had broken the law. Never is there any suggestion that their rage resulted from consternation over Stephen's having perverted the scriptures. So, we have to reject this scholarly explanation to this conundrum. But how do we reconcile this apparent discrepancy? Well, again, quoting from Floyd Nolan Jones, he says this, Here is a straightforward example of scholars placing the Septuagint on a level equal to, and yes, even at times, above the Hebrew text. 
but such recourse is totally unwarranted. And that all that is required is to begin with faith in God's many promises that he would preserve his word forever and their careful, prudent examination will expose that there is no real contradiction at all. And he gives us this. Seventy souls referred to in Genesis, we're clearly told we have the 66 that travelled down to Egypt with Jacob. So Jacob himself, Joseph and his two sons are not included in the 66. So that makes the 70 very, very easy. So if the 66 makes sense, let's quote the 70 makes sense, what about the additional five? Well, they, first group, all comprise the house of Jacob, we're told. I want to just add something here as an aside very quickly. Because in Deuteronomy 32, we're told there that when the high, Most High divided the nations to their inheritance, he separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. We're given the number of the children of Israel here. The number is 70. This verse is telling us that when God divided the nations, he did it according to the number of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. 70 children, we're just told, we've just seen it, go down into Egypt, or the total number, 70 of the family. And we find that God has divided the nations of the world into 70 families. If we look at the family tree of Noah and their descendants and the sons that come off this, this branch here, Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth, from what we, we're given in Genesis 10 and 11, we have 70 families, just as God said. This is an aside, this is fascinating. Which is back to this 75 question. So, as to the 75, Jones comments, it says this, Stephen is neither mistaken nor is he citing from the Septuagint when he gives the number 75. He's speaking of a different entity which he calls Jacob's kindred. The terms house of Jacob and kindred, though similar, are not synonymous. As we've shown, the house of Jacob number 70 and consisted of only Jacob as well as his seed. And in other words, those who were told came from his loins. But as to Jacob's kindred, sorry, however, Jacob's kindred that Joseph sent for to come to him are the 66 that are already given, plus the wives of his sons. Stephen is referring to those that Joseph sent for. Again, the 66 plus the wives of the sons that came down with their father. In Genesis 26, 46, 26, we're given the clue that, again, these wives are the key to differentiating between the 70 and the 75. There we read that the 66 souls came with Jacob down to Egypt besides Jacob's sons' wives. Again, the details in the text are so precise. These daughters-in-law were not included as having to do with the house of Jacob, which numbered only those who came out of his loins. But they're part of Jacob's kindred that Joseph sent for. Makes sense, doesn't it? And Jacob, of course, we know had 12 sons to determine how many of their wives went down to Egypt. We simply take the 75 kindreds, subtract the 66, which came from his loins, as they're included in the kindred, and obtain nine rather than 12. So we're looking for nine individuals. That's nine of the 75 that came down to Egypt with Jacob did not come from his loins. Genesis 46, 26 has already alerted us to the fact that they're his son's wives. So we've got the three of the 12 son's wives were not numbered in the kindred. Of course, we must immediately exclude Joseph's wife. She's already in Egypt, so that's one of them. A second is found earlier in Genesis 38, 12, where we learn that Judah's wife had died previously, so that's another one. So thus, 
one of the other sons must also have been a widower. And he says, we may deduce that it was almost certainly Simeon. A special attention is called to the fact that Shaul, his youngest, was by a Canaanitess. We've already seen in Genesis 38 what God did in regards to intermarrying with the Canaanites. So in conclusion, Dr. Jones states this, he says, manifestly the Septuagint that is today extant or in existence has been proven spurious. So Manasseh and Ephraim are far too young to be fathers when Joseph Kindred went down into Egypt, much less grandfathers. The reading in the Septuagint is grossly untenable. He says this, thus the five missing names in the Hebrew text at Genesis 46.20 and again they're given, are seen to have been interpolated by conjecture from Genesis 50:23 and Numbers and those other scriptures. The author of the Septuagint has tried to force Genesis 46:20 to conform to Acts 7:14, And this shows that the Septuagint in use today was not written B.C. That's not to say that there wasn't a Septuagint that was translated B.C., but that which is used and referred to today clearly is an invention of a modern, the modern era. Because he says, his editor had a New Testament before him as he wrote. He says this, The painfully obvious conclusion before us is that by not grasping the true explanation of the 66, 70 and 75, the translator of the Septuagint tried to correct what he perceived as a scribal error in the Hebrew text. In doing so, he created one. I share that with you just because I want to encourage you once again to take the details in Scripture seriously. Everything is there by deliberate design. And these little phrases and words matter. And there is no contradictions you're going to stumble across if you read it in context, if you look at what is actually said. And this is just one that's often banded around. Let's carry on. We're told that he sent Judah before him unto Joseph. Judah started to come to the fore now in the family to direct his face unto Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. 22 years and they finally see each other again. And Israel said unto Joseph, (laughs) these are the first words now let me die (laughs) since I've seen thy face because thou art alive I used to think thanks dad after 22 years he's like that's it I can die now but obviously this has been such a a strain on his heart for this time he just wanted to see his son one more time I heard a lovely story I was listening to one of the commentaries online uh, getting ready for this morning and um this is a true story there was a, a rabbi he was on a plane and they realized that the person this elderly man that sat next to him was also a jew so they just got chatting with each other uh, and it turns out that this elderly gentleman had gone through the holocaust and they were chatting and they they, they served some some food and, and things on the plane and the rabbi noticed that this individual just tucked into the food and, and amongst it there was there was sausage and this elderly gentleman ate it. He said, do you mind me asking? He said, why, you know, if you're a Jew? He said, well, he said, because during the Holocaust, he said, I lost my only son. He said, and ever since then, he said, I eat whatever I want. Clearly, he was saying that he'd kind of given up on God because of what had happened in his family. So they carried on chatting for the journey. and They got on really well. And um, they, the flight ended and they went their separate ways. And the rabbi always kind of regretted not getting this man's number because they, they, they just you know, enjoyed each other's company so much. 
Well, sometime later um, at Yad Vashem, which is the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum just outside Jerusalem, this rabbi was there, he was just going for a visit, and he happened to notice this old man outside. And he kind of went running up to him, he said, oh, he said, do you remember me? He said, yes, I remember you. He said, and I still eat sausages. And he said, would you come in with me? He said, no. He said, I never go in. He said, I come here. He said, but I don't go in. He said, I, I told you that I lost my son in the Holocaust. And this rabbi just, again, just started talking. He said, I did never ask you. He said, what's your name? So this elderly gentleman gave his name. At which point the, the rabbi just looked back into his eyes and said, Daddy. And the rabbi was this man's son. And just as Jacob here had thought his son was dead, was alive. This is also such a beautiful story. And <laughs> apparently the, uh, the elderly Jew doesn't eat sausages now. <laughs> See, God is faithful. So, again, Israel sees Joseph so pleased that he's alive and Joseph said unto his brethren unto his father's house I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him my brethren and my father's house which were in the land of Canaan are come unto me and the men are shepherds for their trade has been to feed cattle and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have and it shall come to pass that when Pharaoh shall call you you shall say, and shall say what is your occupation that you should say, thy service trade has been about cattle from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. And Joseph explains, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. God already working here to keep them separate. We're just going to go through the next chapter. It's not going to take us just very long. I just want to tail off this section. So Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold... They are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men. We're not sure why he takes five. We know that from some of the Egyptian art, shepherds were depicted often as being, well, they were seen as the outcasts of society. And they were often drawn with limbs missing or, you know, teeth missing and so on. So maybe Joseph chooses the best looking brothers to try and impress Pharaoh. Um, but whatever, he takes just five and presents them unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh said unto his brethren, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, following the script that Joseph had given, uh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said, Moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come. Notice that they understood that this was temporary. This was temporary accommodation for them. They were there because of the famine, because God had led them. They were there because God was doing something else back in the land of Canaan, getting it ready for them to go back into. But they had to move out. And they're only here to sojourn in the land. For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee, and the best of the land make thy father and thy brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. And if thou knowest any man of activity among them, to make them rulers over my cattle. He says to Joseph, Joseph, if there's any more like you, you can get them to do some work for me. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father. Now this is an incredible scene. And set him before Pharaoh. So this is elderly Jacob. 
130 years old, we'll see in a second, walking into Pharaoh's court. Now, you have to understand the context here, because at this point, Egyptians didn't live very long because of their hygiene and other issues that were going on. They, they tended to live maybe 40, 50 years, but not much beyond that. In walks 130-year-old Jacob. And Jacob doesn't come in and bow before Pharaoh. Jacob comes in, and we're told, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. I mean, this was just so, you know, you talk about royal etiquette and all those kind of things, totally out the window, that Jacob walks in now, and this king, the most powerful man in the world at this time, is the one who feels inferior. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old are you? Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days and the years, my pilgrimage. Now again, the Egyptians had a, an understanding of the afterlife. And they saw this life as a pilgrimage as well. Of course, Jacob's understanding is far better, far greater, because it's come from God. That this time here is just a pilgrimage. This isn't our home. We're only, only visiting this planet. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jacob says, the days and the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. And then he says, few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. You know, it's a strange statement. 130 years old to say few and evil. Some people think that if they have a long life, they'll be satisfied. You know, if you look through church history, you will find so many people who died young, whose names are almost household names to us. People like Oswald Chambers. He was younger than, than I am now when he died. And many other great evangelists and teachers and theologians. Some of them were just in their late 20s when they died. But they accomplish so much. See, it's not about how long your life is. It's about what you live for while you're alive. And you can have a really long life, but actually, if it's not lived for the purposes of God, Jacob says again, few and evil of the days of the years of my life been and have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Of course, he's thinking of his own father, 180, and, you know, these other characters we read in Scripture. You know, going back to, to the times of, of Noah. And by the way, Shem could have even sat and spoken to Jacob at times. We don't, we, we, there's no record of Scripture that they ever met. But they could have done. They would have been alive at the same time. Albeit just for a short while. Can you imagine Jacob going and seeing great, 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 great granddad Shem and talking to him about the flood and what the world was like before the flood? So Jacob says, you know, I haven't lived really all that long. Not compared to my, my ancestors. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Again, so he blesses him as he goes in, he blesses him as he goes out. Yeah, you, know, you can imagine, you know, Jacob as he goes out. Who, who was that? I was just speaking to him. Getting old and Pharaoh probably just lost the words. 
these evil years that Jacob speaks of, you think of the trial. It was 70 years effectively wrestling with his brother from birth. Uh, 20 years, of course, then in Haran, struggling with Uncle Laban. 15 years back in the land, in and around the area of Shechem. And, of course, the problems that they had there with the men of the city and Reuben, of course, sleeping with his concubine and so on. For 35 years, he was separated from Isaac, his father. And then, of course, three years in the the land that had been promised to him. With Joseph and his own sons, all the struggle that was going on there. And then 22 years of separation. You understand why he says what he says. What a challenging life Jacob had. His name, again, means heel catcher. You know. He he struggled so often trying to provide for himself. And in some senses that was taking a burden that wasn't really his. And you contrast that to the benefit of resting in the provision of God. You certainly look at Joseph and all his trials, but the place we should be is that place of rest before the Lord. David's advice to Solomon says this, For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thy heart retain my words and keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not and she shall preserve thee. Love her and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. With all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor. And that does embrace her. She shall give to thine hand an ornament of grace and a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings. And the years of thy life shall be many. And not just many, but blessed. So we read that Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave the possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land. See, that's what God does, isn't it? It gives us the best. In the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. You imagine almost daily Joseph going out, spending time, catching up with them, trying to reclaim some of these years that they'd lost together. And we read, And there was no bread nor the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they had brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth, we've got no more money. So Joseph said, Okay, give us your cattle, and I'll give you for your cattle if money fail. So in other words, I'm going to give you food, I'll give you bread, but you give me your cattle. You can look after it, you can tend it, you can do what you do with it, but it's going to belong to Pharaoh now. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses, and for the flocks, and for the cattle, and for the herds, and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle uh, for that year. And when that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it uh, from my Lord, how that our money is spent. And the Lord also has our herds of cattle, and there is out left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be thy servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die. The land be not desolate. It's effectively Joseph says, okay, 
Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end uh, of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion with Pharaoh, uh, which Pharaoh gave them. Wherefore they sold not their lands. Yeah, just again, Israel, we find, are blessed. Uh, those who bless Israel are being blessed now as well. You know, Israel is becoming a great nation through all of this. That's the backdrop. And then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have brought you this day in your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the increase, that you shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh. That's 20% tax given to them. Uh, and four parts shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food, and for them of your households and food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in thy sight, in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew near that Israel, that Jacob must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight. (laughs) It's a strange expression from the father to the son. But of course, the circumstance set this up. If now I have found grace in thy sight, but I pray thee thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not. I pray thee, in Egypt. Again, holding on to that promise. But there's a land that will be theirs. He says, But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, as Joseph said, I will do as thou hast said. Of course, Joseph is going to do the same thing himself. It's important even in this, Jacob still teaching his children, teaching Joseph. And he said, swear unto me. And he swore unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now he's not going to die immediately. We're going to see him bring a blessing upon his children uh, in the subsequent weeks. Jacob's desire to lie with his fathers again. They're out of the land for this period of time. Certainly 215 years spent in Egypt. Uh, The whole 400 years of sojourning uh, they have. To be buried in that cave of Machpelah, which we read about in Genesis 23. It's where Abraham was buried. It's where Isaac and Rebekah. It's where Leah and Jacob's wife have been buried. It's ultimately where Jacob himself is going to be buried. We'll pick up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father, what an incredible portion of your word. Just to see how you engineer circumstances. Father, we're amazed at times that we can worry. When we just see... Lord, how in control you are. Lord, when we step back and we look and we see examples like this in your word. Lord, even when things happen that we don't understand, like Jacob having to go down into this land of Egypt. And yet, Lord, you were with him. Father, your word speaks of the lesser being blessed of the greater. And Lord, we see that with Pharaoh being blessed by Jacob. 
Lord, all the wealth, all the riches that Pharaoh had amounted to nothing in your estimation. Father, teach us from these things, we pray, to trust you more. Lord, do teach us also to have a high regard and respect for your word, for every detail. To love it more, to cherish it. Father, just as Jacob had that yearning to be in that place of promise, Lord, may our hearts also have a yearning to be in the home that you've promised us. Lord, that place where our citizenship is, not in this world, but in heaven. May that be, Lord, where we desire to go, like Abraham, not sending up any permanent dwelling here, but Lord, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may God richly bless you through this coming week.